if you would take your scriptures and turn to Psalm 62. (coughs) Psalm 62, we'll be reading the entire psalm, verses 1 through 12. Psalm 62, would you give ear to the reading of God's word? Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you attack, O man? You who shall be slain, all of you like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouths, but they curse inwardly. My soul waits silently for God alone. My expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times. You people, pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighted on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we know that had it been possible that perfection could have come through the law, Christ would have never needed to come. But he did need to come. The former regulation was set aside because it was weak and useless, and we now have a better hope by which we can draw close to God. That hope is written for us in the new covenant. Our prayer this morning is that you will give us ears to hear and hearts to understand this wonderful word's of eternal life. Guide everyone here to Jesus Christ and through glorious gift and this glorious gift of life he has given through his word. We ask this in his name. Amen. Now, this psalm lays out for us a picture of the great doctrines of grace, their place in the salvation of our souls. God created man created him to be the crown of his creation. He made man to serve as his vice regent, to be king over all he made. He placed man in the garden. He gave him the run of place. He allowed man to name all of the animals. He came and had fellowship with man each day in the garden. Man was indeed in a perfect paradise. He was given the highest possible place in creation and was honored above all the other creatures God had made. He was the apple of God's eye, if you will. Yet, you must understand, God also placed before man a test. He put him on probation. A test to see if man would remain faithful to his creation mandate. Man was told, 
He could have anything in the garden he wanted except the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. He was told, should he violate this command, he would surely die. As you know, man failed his probation. He ate of the fruit, and thus the sentence was carried out. He was separated from God and entered into a spiritual death. This is the death of which Paul speaks in Ephesians 2.1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. This is a complete death of the soul. It is a spiritual death. We are also told in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. In Romans 8, 5, and 6, we're told the mind of sinful man is death. Man, in his rebellion against God, plunged himself into a state of total spiritual death. He has no heart to seek God and no desire to know God's truth. He cannot call out to God with a dead heart. Psalm 14, 1 says of men, they are corrupt, they have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Psalm 53, verses 2 and 3 adds to this. God looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Every one of them is turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not even one. All men have fallen into the spiritual death. They have fallen from the lofty place for which they were created. They have committed treason against the Creator and have become worthless for the purpose they were created to fulfill. Man in his natural state, he can never please God. He cannot accomplish what God created him to accomplish because he's now dead. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 says that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The prophet Jeremiah declares, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jesus himself said, out of the heart come evil thoughts. The apostle Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, all have sinned. Some try to explain this away. They try to use the idea that, that man is only spiritually sick. He's only near death. But that doesn't line up with the verses we just mentioned. Ephesians 2.1, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Death entered this world through one man, Adam, and was passed on to all men coming through him by ordinary generation. We call this the doctrine of total depravity. Man, because of Adam's sin, is born into spiritual death and has no desire, no ability to seek after God. Now, it really sounds very final, but it is not final. For we serve a just, faithful, and loving God. Our creator decided he would not allow all of his creation to be lost to sin. Therefore, in Genesis 3.15, he makes a promise to mankind that he will send a redeemer to deliver some men from this curse of death. Now, I titled this message, The Foundation of Salvation. In this psalm, David lays out the foundation of salvation. He brings out into the open the hope this salvation brings. Let's examine this psalm and see David's hope. 
First, we will observe God and man. Second, we will look at man's choice and his security. Third, we will study his helplessness and his hope. David is concerned with this, his regulation relationship with God, as all of us should be at times concerned with our relationship with God. He makes a comparison between his need of God and the way he has been treated by men. He looks at the sovereign acts of God in his life and what they mean. He compares that to the depraved acts of men and the results those acts could bring in his life. The sovereignty of God is a, the, one of the most important, if not the most important, theological concept coming out of the Bible. If you don't believe in a sovereign God, then you're not going to believe very much that the Bible teaches. If God is not sovereign, then there is nothing upon which you can stand and be assured things will work out as he has promised in his word. If God is not sovereign and you are spiritually dead, then your death is eternal and there is absolutely no hope for you. David understands these concepts and he speaks about them in order to help you. Verses 1 and 2. Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. The words I want you to pay close attention to in these verses are the words only and alone. David says that he finds rest in God and in God only. David understands there is no rest apart from God. God is the sovereign creator and nothing, absolutely nothing outside of him will provide you what you need. Every man desires peace and rest. The tragic thing about this today is that men are searching in all the wrong places. Psalm 4.8 says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You cannot find peace and rest without first coming to the sovereign God Almighty. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was given a special insight into how man would enter this peace and rest. Listen to his words from Luke 1, verses 78-79. Though the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus Christ is that day spring. It is Christ that comes from heaven to guide you into peace. This Christ is the God-man, and it is purpose to save his people. David also makes clear, my salvation comes from him. The word alone goes along with this part of the sentence also. My salvation comes from him alone, not from anything else. Again, he's acknowledging the sovereignty of God. You cannot save yourself. A spiritually dead man can do nothing spiritual. Seeking God and calling out for help from this, a spiritual problem requires a living spirit. This is the whole point of the doctrine of total depravity. Man has lost all ability to seek after God. 
Not only is every area of his life affected by sin, but the desire to know God and to serve him is missing. This is what Jeremiah is speaking to when he says man's heart is desperately wicked. That means it's beyond cure. It is beyond cure because it's dead. If it were sick, there might be a cure found. The dead heart has but one hope. One hope alone. And that is God's redeeming power. Your salvation is in God's hands. You can be saved only when God works in your heart to make it alive. Paul says in Ephesians 2.5, You were made alive with Christ even when you were dead in trespasses. It is by grace you have been saved. This is exactly, exactly what David means. When he says your salvation comes at the will and pleasure of God alone. Verse 2. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Because David is seeing God as sovereign, especially sovereign in his salvation, he can now place trust in God to deliver him from any and all problems. If you are spiritually dead, and cannot seek God, then in order to have any hope of salvation, you have to trust in God to seek you and to change your heart from stone to flesh. How can you know God will do these things? You can know it because he says he will in his word. The man with a dead heart is not interested in God's word. He doesn't care what God says. Once God gives the new heart, though, that man with a new heart begins to be concerned about his soul. He begins to listen to God's word. Therefore, it is only after God makes the initial change in your heart that you become concerned about spiritual things. To be spiritually concerned is to know God is at work in your life. David says that once you know these things, God becomes a fortress for you. And you will not be shaken no matter what happens because you're trusting in a sovereign God. David turns from God to man now. Verses 3 and 4. How long would you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you, like leaning, a leaning wall and a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They take delight in lies. They bless with their mouth but they curse inwardly. It's always best that you begin your consideration of things with God and then you may confront your enemies. Make sure. Make sure everything is right with God. Then, then you can struggle with mankind and with sin. It is not strange. Is it not strange that persevering in grace is so hard as to be impossible for man without divine assistance. We can't do it on our own. Yet, I find it very strange that man can be so dogged in his resistance of divine truth. Those who oppose God never seem to tire of the fight against his truth. And I'm sure you all know people like that. They are also given to fighting without honor. David here in verses 3 and 4 
marvels at the fact the men, that men will attack and many will try to destroy one another. They have no sense of fair play. They show no mercy. Their attacks are not designed to simply win the battle, but to destroy all who disagree with them. They don't hesitate to lie. They don't hesitate to cheat to win. Winning is the only thing that matters to them. Flattery is their favorite weapon. They have no aversion to using any lever to gain advantage. All of this just goes to show the difference between our holy God and unholy men. God could have squashed Satan. He could have destroyed Adam and Eve at the very moment they sinned. But he did not. He did not because he is a God of justice and mercy. He decreed man's judgment, but left open a time for redemption. That time for redemption is the time from your conception to your physical death. God carried out his sentence on Adam and Eve by separating himself from them and putting them into a state of spiritual death. This was only just and right because of his warning to them, eat of this tree and you will surely die. But in his grace and mercy, he did not let them die physically at the same time they died spiritually. He graciously, graciously, allowed a time of physical life during which he could save his people. Once a man is given a new heart, once he's made alive, he faces a life filled with choices. Understand, a dead man cannot make a choice. You can ask him all day long while he's laying in that casket what color of suit he prefers to be buried in, and he'll never answer you. The same is true of spiritually dead men. A spiritual choice is beyond their ability to comprehend. But as soon as they are given a new heart, they have the power to make spiritual choices. Verse 5 and 6. My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. David knows. He knows that the only rest any man can have is going to be found in God. He also understands that any hope of salvation is found in God and in God alone. Listen to Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us and him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before God, before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. That's wonderful words. Talk about hope. There's the greatest hope you can ever hear. The foundation of your relationship with God is a choice. It was God's choice of you, not your choice of God. You are saved by the electing love of God, manifested before the foundations of this world were ever laid. 
David says in verse 5, He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. The fact he will not be shaken comes from the fact this relationship is not based on his choosing God, but on God choosing him. The doctrine of election does not just apply to the initial act of salvation, but to the whole process of salvation. You are saved by grace alone, and you are carried through this life to heaven by grace and by grace alone. David turns to the trust he has in his God now. Verses 7 and 8. The God, in God is my salvation and my glory. The rock is my strength, and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. Again, David recognizes that it is the work of a sovereign God that gives him his salvation and his honor. It's important that he says God gives him honor. You remember the condition under which man was created as vice regent in the Garden of Eden? He had a place of honor in God's court. But by his rebellion, he lost that place and all honor that went with it. David says that by coming to God, by confessing his transgressions and sins, he is restored by God's grace to a place of honor before God. Adam had it all and he threw it away. Jesus Christ came to give it back to you. God has entered into covenant with man. A covenant is a promise. He came and made a promise to mankind. That covenant is simple. Believe on Jesus Christ and his work on Calvary's cross, and he will restore you to a place of honor. Without Jesus Christ, you are nothing in God's eyes but an enemy. You are at war with God. Jesus Christ has come to reestablish peace between God and man. You cannot have that peace unless you trust completely in Christ Jesus and his works. Listen, this is the greatest work of grace that could ever be. You rebelled. You bit the hand that made you. You died. You were lost without any hope at all. Yet, yet this sovereign God This God who is filled with grace, mercy, and love took pity on your hopelessness. He reached down into the mire of sin that held you captive. And he pulled you out. He restored you to a place of honor higher than even the angels possess. Can you fathom such grace? Can you understand such mercy? Can you explain such love? No. No, for it is greater than your feeble mind can even begin to comprehend. But this I do know. It has happened. It has happened and you can partake if you will only believe on the one sent from heaven, if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. David, as he looked at his trust in God, sees that everything he has ever needed is given him in this one who so graciously saves. 
Listen again to verses 7 and 8. The rock is my strength and my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us all. He makes God. He makes God his own personal God as he says, He is my strength, my refuge. As you come to trust in Christ and his work on your behalf, it all becomes very, very personal. You have been told, and wrongly so, that Christ came to save the world. Nowhere in Scripture you told us. You are told very clearly in Matthew 1.21 that he came to save his people from their sins. The apostle explains in 1 John 4.10, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The hour refers to those who have trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. Acts 4.12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Salvation comes to you only through believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. Verse 8 makes it clear. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. In the last few verses of this psalm, David speaks to both the helplessness of trust in man and his things and the hope of trust in God and in God alone. There's an emptiness in this rebel we call man. He has nothing in him of any weight or worth. There is weight in God, great wealth and wonderful power, and it is waiting, waiting to be poured out on those with the foresight to see that they are empty vessels in need of filling. Emptiness in man comes from his rebellion and spiritual death. Death is the absence of life, and there is no life in the rebel. Verses 8, 9, and 10. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighted on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. David speaks bluntly about men and their condition. Men of low degree are a vapor. Those who have no great genealogical history, common men, if you will, the working class, low-born people, the uneducated, the poor are but a breath. They should, they should, this should be understood in the sense of weight. They have no weight, no clout, or favor. They have nothing to offer to anyone in respect to true wisdom or knowledge in a spiritual sense. He's not playing a class game here because he also says men of high degree are a lie. If the common man is nothing, then the high-born are a lie. Yes, they appear to have some weight, some clout, some wisdom and knowledge, but it's all false. They are men just as those who are low-born, and what they have acquired by position in society or education or by riches of this world is all false in the face of God's truth. Listen to David's assessment of them given by divine inspiration in verse 9. If they are weighted on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. 
put them on the scales of God and weigh them, and they equal nothing. They have no value before a holy God. They are rebels and unfit to come into his presence, be they lowborn or highborn. These creatures created to hold a place of great honor before God have fallen by sin into the very depths of despair. Please, my friends, do not place your trust in any man apart from this God-man. No man has the wisdom to save you from your sins but Jesus Christ. Do you do not trust in your own abilities for they fall far short of what there is required. Trust in Christ and trust in Christ alone. Verse 10. Do not trust in oppression or vainly hope and robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Your heart, your heart must be free. Free from the love of anything but Jesus Christ. He promises you the riches of heaven if you will trust in Christ alone for your salvation. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Believing and trusting in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Not Christ in, in the church, not Christ in your pastor, not Christ in, in your works, but it's in Christ and in Christ alone. That's the only salvation. How do you focus on the riches of his glory? For those who are poor, be content. Those who stand firm and turn not away from the truth will be blessed beyond compare. For the rich, be diligent and faithful to handle righteously what God has entrusted to you and be sure that your reward in heaven is greater than anything you have on this earth. And remember, you cannot enter heaven if you trust in anything other than Jesus Christ. You must trust in Christ and something, you must not trust in Christ and something else either. That's a dead end street to you must trust exclusively, exclusively in Christ, for you can only be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Once you've received the new heart and been made alive and brought into God's family by grace, you will be kept in that family by God's grace and power. Verses 11 and 12. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, the pow- that power belongs to God, Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his word. Here David says, one thing God has spoken. God has spoken and declared that all who will hear and believe will be saved. There are two things you hear out of this one statement. God is strong enough to accomplish what he says. And two, he is a God of grace, mercy, and love. My friends, you cannot be saved apart from the power of God and you will never hear his call to salvation apart from his grace, mercy, and love. Throughout this psalm, David has been making the point, you cannot trust in man or anything man does for your eternal well-being. You cannot trust in the worldly riches to save you. There's but one path to salvation and that's through Jesus Christ and the gospel message he brings. Every other attempt to find salvation apart from him is foolishness. It will only lead you into the lake of fire. But what about this last statement, verse 12? Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, 
For you render to each one according to his works. Here David says God has spoken. Is this not a statement of justice based on your own works? Surely it appears to be on the surface. But you must keep it in the proper context. The whole psalm has been about speaking of God's grace and mercy. David surely would not turn around at the very end after all he has said and offer a work salvation. What he means by this is that God rewards the poor imperfect works of his people. This has been the whole message of this psalm. It is a clear display of God's great mercy. You can see that God gives you responsibility. He also gives you the strength and the courage required to fulfill those duties. God is a, not a hard taskmaster at all. He does not do as Pharaoh did and require you to make bricks without straw. He, is, he in his grace gives you all you require to accomplish the task he asks of you. He gives the new heart so you can be obedient. He gives the new spirit so you can follow his decrees. He gives you faith so you can believe. He gives you his love so you can be loving. He gives you his Holy Spirit so you can understand. He gives you his strength so you can stand firm. All of this, all of this is given so you can see his power and mercy blended together in your life. And it gives a double reason for placing your trust in Christ and in him alone. Men can either help you, they can neither help you nor reward you. It is God who will do both. In him, you find power and grace always present. This should call you to patiently wait and quietly hope for your salvation shall be revealed in him and in him alone. David begins this psalm with the concept of a sovereign God and a brave mankind. He speaks of the electing love of God and the security of his grace. He talks of the sinner's helplessness and the saint's hope. He speaks to everyone who will listen. The message is that God is in control of all things. He is calling all men to hear his word and to listen. To those who will listen, he responds with mercy. To those who will not, he will judge. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 16, 15 through 16, says that as the gospel is preached, it will be the fragrance of life to some or the odor of life to others. You, could take, you should take heart. You are not called to speak the truth. You are called. Sorry, that, boy, that didn't come out right. You should take heart that you are only called to speak the truth and tell others of God's gracious offer. You don't have the work at, you don't have to work at making them believe. That's not your job. That's the work of the Holy Spirit to change hearts. The work of changing hearts is God's work, not yours. Please understand that. Just go out there and be the witness that you can be for Jesus Christ. And you let what happens happen. Because your responsibility ends as soon as you've delivered the gospel of Christ. Your work, your work is to love God 
and it is to obey his word. Let's pray. Hear us, O Father. We turn to you because we know you're the one enthroned in heaven. You taught in this psalm this morning that there's no difference between those who are rich and from high society and those who are without genealogy, title, or riches. May we see all men as sinners in need of salvation. Give us the grace to approach all men with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remove from our hearts any thoughts of racism and hatred toward anyone simply because they are different from us. Open our minds and hearts to show love to all men and to pray that we might have an impact in showing them the love, grace, and mercy we have received from you. Oh, Father, what a gracious and merciful God you are. We know you're the sovereign Lord Almighty and everything is in your hands and we are proud to be understanding of that. We ask, Father, that you would help us in all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.